Hello everyone. Welcome to the episode 8 of podcast series Venture Journey. I'm your host Abhinav and today's episode will be focused on effects of COVID-19 on education investing landscape. And to discuss this, we have a global edtech investor with us, Rohan Wadwa. Rohan, thank you for your time and being here with me today. To introduce Rohan, Rohan has spent his entire career in the education sector. He is motivated by the power of education to enact change and level the playing field. Rohan's background includes education specific experience as a former entrepreneur, consultant and investor. As an entrepreneur, Rohan founded and subsequently sold a higher education exam prep company here in Canada. He later joined the consulting firm Oliver Wayman, help, helping launching their global education practice. Now, he is a vice president and founding member of Lumus Capital Group. a growth equity firm exclusively focused on the future of education and work rohan welcome to the podcast venture journey thanks avi thanks for having me so rohan getting to the topic global venture funding for edtech companies has reached 4.1 billion between january and july 2020 the highest ever in the last 5 years what is happening in this sector since covid 19 yeah well I think with our sector I mean you're seeing a pretty massive acceleration of growth trends that were already in place pre-covid as well as a number of new entrants from the investor side. Um so yes that sounds like a big number I mean it could be a lot bigger and it has been growing even pre-covid um but some of those things have have been amplified by what we're seeing in the pandemic. I mean some examples some obvious ones you know online or hybrid learning incorporating schools i mean that was already growing pre covid but has you know, dramatically accelerated with covid parent involvement and share of wallet going towards education in north america that's actually quite quite stark relative to what uh, it was pre covid um, other things too you know like not only in k12 virtual training for virtual corporate learning uh, as a replacement for in person face to face corporate training that's been a massive shift um as well as more job focused skills oriented training when you think about higher education or universities and colleges uh, that was already a trend pre covid being more job oriented that's that's accelerated now too as people are more focused on on reskilling and upskilling so we have seen so many unicorns across the globe for example apply board from canada an academy from india so what is happening with the valuations overall and how has your deal flow changed yeah well i guess at this point there's there's probably a little bit over 20 or so unicorns in the in the education space uh, and each one you know when you talk about valuation probably requires its own sort of nuanced commentary on why it's valued as it as it is but to give you some broad strokes I mean I think it's just, it was just a matter of time and I I only I suspect we'll only see that accelerate for for reference you know one of the stats we like to look at education in terms of spend globally is something like 6 trillion dollars but the market cap or the market capitalization of public companies is something like a few hundred million dollars so not even 10% not even 5% of the spend is in sort of public dollar uh market capitalization. And yes, there's a lot of private companies, there's also a lot of public funding, but that's a massive gap. Um you don't see that when you look at just global spend, like global GDP versus global public market cap, it's actually quite on par. 
or even healthcare, which is also a very public spend dominated sector, you see, you know, almost like a 50% gap, about $10 trillion spend, $5 trillion in public dollar um, uh, market capitalization, uh, public company market capitalization. So it's only a matter of time, I think, given how much spend is in education, and we think that spend's gonna grow, but even with the existing spend, uh, there's just a lot more opportunity for private company and public company growth in this sector. Uh, so I think that's what you'll see also drive, drive up valuations. Uh, in terms of your question around deal flow, I mean, speaking very tactically on the day-to-day, we're, we are seeing you know, no shortage of deal flow. I think that's, that's been amplified with, with all the change going on. Though we're also seeing a lot more interest from generalist investors. So though I, though I do think there's a lot more to support some of these higher valuations, uh, one of the things on the fringe that's affecting it as well is just more competition from investors, more generalist investors coming in. Therefore, it might, it might push up valuations um, by one or two increments. So are you saying that as a founder, they, for them, it's easy to raise money at a higher valuation right now, comparatively what it was pre-COVID? I think it very much depends on the sector they're looking at. Uh, I do think, you know, if you just, it's, it's hard because I'm sure founders listening are, are suggesting that, hey, it's, it's hard to, to raise money in any case. Though thematically and from, from a very high level, I mean, there is a lot of dry powder. You know, there's a, there are a lot of funds that have a lot of money that they would like to deploy. And, you know, there's even more flow going into equities, public and private, because of lower interest rates. So the opportunity costs of other assets are, uh, are, are lower. So I, I actually do think this is a time where there is a lot more, you know, dry powder and capital flowing into the sector. Among sectors, education is even more amplified. Uh, so think, things around, you know, online learning are some of the, the more first order, uh, you know, companies that are resulting of effects of, of covid uh, likely are seeing seeing a lot of interest, um, and you may have a relatively easier time than before to to raise funding. Though, admittedly, you know I have a lot of empathy for for these entrepreneurs. I, I imagine raising around is is difficult in any situation. You mentioned the deal flow has gone up. So, which regions do you feel it? Because you are a global investor, Lumos Capital invests globally, and so is it like specific regions like Asian countries, like for example India, or is Canada, or like? like South, South American companies. Where do you feel the deal for going? Yeah, our, so our split, I mean, I think that, that will likely depend a lot on the fund by fund, but in terms of activity, we probably spend our time proportionally, you know, outside, at least outside of North America on the size of those markets. And there are some interesting go, things going on. I mean, we spend a lot of time, let's say in Brazil or broadly Latin America, in India, as well as in China with some of our partners. Uh, in some of those areas, one of the themes we're looking at that's quite interesting, uh, you're seeing China and India particularly historically having really high share of wallets spend on education. I mean, just the environment, the appetite, and the mentality towards spend on education is just a lot greater. And so you're seeing you know, 10 to 20% of spend going to education. Uh, that's pretty high. Uh, that, that pales in comparison. So that, that is a lot higher than what you'd see in North America. This is like sub 5%. Um, that, that's changing. I mean, I think some of that appetite, what we saw and what we saw, you know, a lot of Indian and Chinese companies benefit from is now also moving a little bit to North America. So that's something that helps given our, our global uh, view, viewpoint, we're able to see some of those themes and trends play out across geographies. So that's an example. Similarly, in, in India and China, you know, particularly in India, you saw 
a lot more of, yes, there was a lot more spend on education, but that was typically going towards face-to-face online, or sorry, face-to-face tutoring, uh, test prep, et cetera. And the online digital players were actually forced to go door-to-door on the ground to try and sell some of these digital subscriptions. Well, COVID's changed that for them. I think there's a lot more pull um, towards, you know, what are, what are the digital alternatives out there? And so these companies are now, you know, benefiting from not having to send people on the ground, but instead answer, answer the phones or um, sell things purely uh, through a digital funnel. Uh, so those are some of the themes are, are, we've been seeing globally, but every region probably requires its own, you know, viewpoint uh, to, to determine what, what themes and theses you want to, you want to follow. For sure. I think that's a, for online tech, that's a blessing in disguise that they no more have to go offline and try to sell online. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, Rohan, did investors realize that this sector will be as big as e-commerce or is it only specific kinds of tech startups that we are looking at right now? Can you share like some of the teams you're thinking about at Lumis Capital? Sure. So, in terms of you know the, the e people do use that e-commerce example quite quite a bit um, just because of what happened with SARS and how that opened up the e-commerce world. I think there's something similar going on. I mean, you're generally you're seeing a lot of generalist investors finally waking up to the merits and the importance of the, the sector. That said, we we think there's a lot of value to a specialized eye towards the sector. So. When we're talking to entrepreneurs and founders, we, we do see that resonance with our, our specialization, our differentiation. In terms of themes, I mean, what I've been spending more of my time on is trying to think a little bit about the, the second or third order effects of COVID. So I think, you know, some of the, the first order effects of COVID, those companies that are benefiting from them, I mean, you're facing some of the things we've, we've already talked about, you know, high valuations, a question around, is this something that's a lasting impact or is it just a, you know, a, a COVID specific impact? And so, you know, good examples of that. I mean, one could be job focused skill or job focused skills oriented training. You know, like I think that's one that, you know, generally speaking, pre COVID was, was rising. You know, you're seeing a lot more people, look for shorter duration, lower cost, much more job focused training or schooling even um, relative to traditional higher education or traditional programs. Uh, I think that's, that's only amplified and we're, we're not yet seeing the full effects of it. I mean, there's a lot more people or there's a lot of people who are out of jobs looking to reskill, looking to upskill and, and, and then re-enter the, the job market. Uh, we, we see a lot of benefit from those kinds of players that are serving those that are either serving them directly. So, you know, alternative higher ed players themselves or service providers who are selling into them. Um, and so I think that, that's an example of one, you know, that there are others, you know, the intersection of education and gaming. You know, I think that's a really exciting one. I don't think it's really been done well in the past. You know, I, I often use this silly analogy of how most of what's happened in the past is, um, is broccoli, you know, it's highly nutritious, uh, you know, highly educational, but maybe not the most engaging for students. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have ice cream, which is you know, not educational, but very tasty, very engaging. Uh, and that, that, that's sort of your fortnight of the world. And, and I think there's an opportunity really in the middle here, especially as parents are getting more involved in the education side of, of things um, to create that perfect peanut butter jelly sandwich where, you know, kids don't mind it. They, they enjoy it. And it's, it's sort of in, in, engaging in terms of the product. 
but you also have the support of important stakeholders like teachers and parents. Uh, it, it really requires a, a very thoughtful and diverse team to create a product that can play in that intersection. But that, that's, a, that's a real opportunity. And I think that's not something that's you know, necessarily intuitive or, or, or obvious or first order when you think about the effects of COVID. So that, that's, a, that's a flavor of them. We probably have about a half a dozen to a dozen of those that, we, that we're really thinking a lot about. And is, is this a global trend? And what are, what are the global themes you're looking at? Uh, globally, some of the ones that you know, I, I had mentioned, I mean, I think some of the, the private play players that are digital in, in India, as an example, we like that. And we think, you know, in the past, unit economics were a little bit tougher there. You, know, when, when you just imagine if you have to send people on the ground to sell, it's just it's expensive to sell those subscriptions or digital subscriptions. Now we're in a situation where the, the unit economics actually start to work, you know, and so I think we, we've, we've enjoyed that as, as an area to look at. Um, there's, even, there's an even greater gap in some of these other countries on the education to employment link. So, you know, taking whatever skills you're developing in education and, you know, making that be fit for the workplace. So that's another area that we've also been spending a little bit of time uh, globally. Uh, and so that, that gives you a flavor of probably where we're going. So you mentioned unit economics. Well, for COVID, I would say yes. But what happens after COVID? Because India has been like very traditional mind, has a traditional mindset when it comes to education. And once the COVID is gone, like, don't you think people will tend to and prefer offline coaching again? And the unit economics, the cost of acquisition will eventually go up. So what is your thought on that? Yeah, uh, that's where, I mean, I think it's, it's important to try and find where <clears throat> what companies and business models have a true, you know, customer acquisition advantage. You know, I, I, if you're spending money on, on Facebook and Google ads and you just got to benefit from COVID, like that, that may not be sustainable, right? I mean, uh, there might be less inbound interest in, in your product or your, your category over time and therefore you know there's you have to spend more to get that attention but if if there's a broader you know customer acquisition strategy uh that can benefit from it then, then your unit economics you can start to be more sustainable um or you know if if you know you have other strategies that are more on the retention side so it's not just about acquiring the customer but retaining them for a longer period of time that could make your unit economics work uh, we, we do I mean to your COVID question I mean, we do spend a lot of time trying to I think a lot of investors are sort of asking themselves this question of uh, you know what is a you know COVID effect versus like what has just been amplified by COVID so is this a business that is just doing well because of COVID or is this a business that is now amplified because of COVID and will, will have a lasting effect? And that comes down to the unit economics part too, right? So if you have a view that this is a lasting effect, then you, know, you start to feel more comfortable with the unit economics. Rohan founders always have their bias. They will always say, you know, it's, it's, it has not, even though the business has gone up because of COVID, they will always say it's amplified because of COVID and this growth will sustain over the longer term. How do you differentiate that? How do you separate the froth from the bubble? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're definitely right that, and I, I think that makes sense that there's a founder bias towards it. And that, that's, that's part of our job, I guess, right? Is to try and figure out what is, what is lasting, what is not. Uh, you can see, you know, I'll give an example. I mean, areas where 
there, there's a, there's a require, quite a bit of a required um, category education, you could see there being a lasting effect of, of COVID. For example, you know, look at like Zoom, it probably works in the inverse, but people may not have used Zoom or working from home. That's actually a great, that's a better example. Um, Pre-COVID, you know, there wasn't as much, you know, experience and education around like what does working at home mean, right? But people go through that experience and then now start to realize, hey, you know what, maybe there's a, there's a middle ground here that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's working from home a few days a week for those that are fortunate enough to be able to do that. Uh, or, or it's, you know, one day a week or four days a week or whatnot. Um, so what, what, what we look at, I mean, a good example is a company that has a really good product, you know, really good product reviews, really good MPS scores, et cetera. But their category has less education around it. Or there's less awareness of the category. You could see that be, you know, something that's a lasting effect. Okay, there's category awareness that was created in, in a shot through COVID. Well, that could have lasting impact then now on this, this company's ability to get more organic user acquisition because now there's just more people who understand this category. Uh, so that's kind of how, how we think about it too. And you're right that, and to their benefit too, right? Founders have to be, you know, probably optimistic on what is the effects of this pandemic on their business. Um, though it's, it's in our, our job to, as fiduciaries, to try and figure out what is, what is, what is lasting impact versus short-term impact. And you mentioned that you need to judge and, and you know you need to analyze this business model and the founders. Before COVID, it was a bit easier because you could have met the founders personally. Like meeting founders was essential for investments. Mm-hmm. COVID has disrupted that completely. So how are VCs doing their due diligence right now? Yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting time. I mean, for our for our company, our our firm, in some ways we we've had the benefit of you know we're basically four people and. We're split, we're bi-coastal. I mean, there's two of us on the East Coast, two on the West Coast. So we're very familiar, at least internally, working remotely and have done so now for a few years. Um, and I think that's been a adjustment for a lot of investment firms that may have one office or, or two, but they're generally all working together, doing their Monday meetings or, or partner meetings all in the same room. Um, on, the, on the external facing side and meeting with entrepreneurs, I think in terms of making the investment decision, it depends a lot on the stage. So to contextualize it, I mean, I I would say earlier stage investors and the earliest stage investors likely are are more comfortable and have to be somewhat comfortable with making investments virtually because they have have amount of capital they have to deploy. They have to deploy it in a certain number of, of companies. Um, any given investment may be a lower proportion of the overall fund. Uh, and so you may be making more of those bets virtually just because by virtue of you having to do that. might be tougher because the bets in those situations are also a lot more uh, you know, dependent on the founders and the people, not to say it isn't in other elements of the stages, but it is very important, obviously, the earlier you are because there's, there's fewer other people around the table and less of a product. Um, as you go later stage, what we've seen, like, I mean, the latest stages, you're seeing either some funds really pause or, or hold back, particularly in the first three to six months of COVID. Um, 
but but some even you know having it still be a requirement to meet the team in in person and really you know whether that's setting up a place to meet that's safe and and whatnot to do it uh, they've they've actually kept kept with it I mean we, we sort of play in the middle as a growth stage investor and usually we use a, a pretty relationship forward approach which has actually you know, served us well a lot of the investments or prospective investments we look at and spend a lot of time with are generally with founders and management teams we have pretty deep pre-existing relationships with either directly with the management team or and or through a number of other connections into the firm so that's been really helpful in this time you know you're not really evaluating you know some of the more intangibles that you just get through getting to know someone because we already sort of know the team at, at some level it's a little bit more on business model and some of the metrics around it. And you already are coming in with a certain level of trust and comfort with the, the team, which it, I think is actually an edge right now. Uh, Ron, having spoken of this, there has been a bias at, from early stage investors to prefer repeat founders or founders who have been successful before, because it, it becomes easier to invest in them during COVID. Has, are you seeing, or is there a bias it for like middle and late stage investor as well. Yeah, I mean, probably like any anything in life to some degree, there there are some benefits from having seen or gone through uh, something before. Now, there are there are two elements that are important here. Like one is that you know there are, there are nuances to every situation. So every situation is somewhat different. So even if you've been through, especially in running a business, it's, it's probably not the same on your second or third or fourth, you're going to face different issues. You might be better at just facing any issue and dealing with conflict or dealing with uh, concerns as a prior founder. So I, I, I do respect that there is likely a, a premium you know, to be had on on founders who have prior successful experience just because they've been through it before. Uh, like you or I with anything else in, in life that we've done, you know, if you've, if you've cooked a certain meal, you're probably better at it the second time or you're a little bit more familiar with it and you know how much salt or pepper to put or a little bit better. Um, now on the flip side, I think as investors, <clears throat> you also recognize that you're really looking for alpha or differentiation and yeah, like there, there are prior founders that have two or three successful exits. Well, that, that's going to be recognized by the, other, the rest of the investors as well, right? So you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for looking at founders who may not have uh, you know, a prior successful exit or actually have prior experiences that did not go so well. And you know, people learn a lot from that, maybe arguably more. And so I, I think there is a lot of opportunity there too. Um, so I, I, at least if, if, if part of the question is asking, do you spend time only with prior founders? Like, not at all. I mean, I think we, we definitely ascribe a premium and uh, to, to those who have successful prior experience because it's likely warranted. Uh, though in terms of our sourcing and where we spend time, I mean, if anything, we're trying to be more proactive on the, the latter. You know, I think there's a lot of founders that just that go overlooked. And in some cases, we have to be a little bit more proactive on building relationships with them. For your meal, meal example, I always feel the first time, if I'm cooking a meal for the first time, I like experiment more. So it might turn out to be amazing or <laughs> otherwise. 
So yeah, you, so it's like you maybe need to prescribe the, the recipe so that you know where, where, so you can repeat it if it ends up being a great experiment or not. Um, yeah, I think, as you can see, I like, the, I like the food analogy as an example. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. So having spoken about the founders and coming to business, like what matrix matters the most today? And this is for founders specifically, like what additional KPIs do you think they should start measuring or they should measure? Yeah, I mean, the, the traditional ones are probably ones everyone's going to look at. Like, so the typical SaaS metrics, like churn, retention, margins. I think if I'm trying to sort of share, you know, more valuable insight, I mean, maybe as a founder or as an entrepreneur, if you're sort of getting questions or data requests from investors, it's sort of trying to ask yourself the what's the question behind the question? You know, what, what, are, what, are, what are they really trying to solve for? So that you can manage the narrative accordingly. Because often the data items that are being asked for are to, to answer a broader question. You know, it might be things like product quality. So it might be asking for MPS, but the reality we're asking MPS to figure out like, is this a good product? So that can be painted through reviews, can be painted even through retention, could be painted through qualitative customer feedback. Uh, and therefore you're able to you know, answer the, the question behind the question, which is product quality uh, through an amalgamation of what, what is available to you. Um, so if I was running my business and you know, we kind of do as, as our own fund or if you're as an entrepreneur, it's really trying to ask yourself, well, what is the question behind the question? And how do I paint an answer that solves that question? Not necessarily just providing data. And there's a number of areas. I mean, some of these SaaS metrics, you know, you're really looking to solve for unit economics. So it's like, okay, well, how do I paint the picture of here's what my unit economics look like um, or size of the market or, or things like that. So that, that's what I encourage them. And in the education space, you know, an area that, that we believe very strongly in, especially for long-term success is, you know, the, the need to, to generate outcomes. I mean, we, we have a, an impact lens in the way that we think about things as well. And, you know, ensuring that you're de delivering as, as much on, you know, quality, however you're defining it and hopefully being intentional around is that, is that engagement that leads to, you know, better scores? Is it directly, you know, whether it's scores or other things, uh, learning outcomes, essentially, uh, are you, are you ensuring access to the broadest possible population or, or even equity in terms of trying to, to serve the most disadvantaged populations. Um, so, and, and I think doing those things, that, and that's our, our firm belief is that there's a strong degree of collinearity between those two things. Like if you are delivering really good learning outcomes, serving you know, a, a broad population and doing so equally or with equity, uh, it, it will be rewarded by, you know, good financial returns in this, in this kind of sector. Um, so that, that's, that's maybe the only added lens on the education side, but generally speaking, the only advice I would have is try and look for the question within the question and, you know, build, build your narrative and data, data around that. So Rohan, like looking for the like, questions behind the question, like the main intention, it's easy for an investor, like for a founder, if the questions are on email or if it's all like, if the investor expect an answer after some time, but most of the questions the investors ask are during the pitch, during the Q and A, like how should that, founder tackle that if like he or she doesn't have an answer is it fine for a founder to take some time and say i'll come back or that's that's a big negative for an investor yeah of course i mean i, I think generally speaking 
you know, it's, it's very comfortable to take, to take your time. I mean, there's, a, there's an element of reasonableness too. I mean, if, if the questions are ones that it's subjective, but that maybe a CEO or co-founder should, should know, like let's say a smaller company, like how many employees do you have? It's probably maybe a question you should just know offhand um, or at least have a very close range towards. Um, so there's an element of reasonableness that's added to it, but generally speaking, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're looking for, at least for us, and maybe every investor is different. It's not like we're looking for a founder that is just very quick-witted on, you know, what to what, what to say in the, in the moment. I mean, there's an element of being decisive and nimble, but that that's not gained through sort of asking a, a question about something this specific and expecting an answer right away. So generally speaking, we want we want the best possible answer, and it's okay if it takes time. Yeah, though, if it's something you know basic or foundational about your your company, we probably expect you to to know it you know at, at any point when it's asked. And for early stage founders specifically, the LTV like every early stage founder find it hard to measure the LTV compared to a late stage founder or a startup which is in much which is mature. How how should the founder tackle that? Yeah, I, I think that's a great I think that's a great question. So. Often early stage, I mean, you don't have the benefit of longitudinal data, right? Like you're not seeing, okay, five years of cohort analysis or whatnot. I mean, the reality though, is that you see behaviors earlier as it relates to engagement. You know, I think engagement sort of precedes a turn in a way. And so to the extent you can show quality and engagement, I think that gives people confidence on the durability of uh, the the customer base. Uh, another angle to do it is to show, you know, people look at payback, right? Like CAC payback, like how quickly do you get your money back for acquiring a subscriber? And so I think, I think a, a triangulation across those two helps. I mean, it, to try and demonstrate that, hey, look, we expect these customers to last, uh, you know, and, and stick along with us for a long period of time because their engagement hasn't faltered. You know, in month six versus month two, they're still, you know, spending X amount of time with our product or have Y number of employees or students using it. Um, so we feel confident that they're going to keep keep going. Um, so that that those are ways to do it. Or, or you you make the argument that look, it's it's been six months and that's already paid back our acquisition costs. So that gives an element of de-risking to our acquisition funnel. Now, coming to those founders whose business has stalled due to COVID, and I'm talking about edtech ed businesses, do you think, or uh, what, what is your thought as an investor? Are they uninvestable for the moment? Um, like the, the ones, so if we think about businesses that have stalled from COVID, generally speaking, there's a lot of brick and mortar businesses that have struggled with COVID, um, as well as maybe some businesses that relied on job placements, because a lot of companies stopped sort of hiring. Uh, I think what we're seeing, is, at least for the latter, we're seeing a lot of hiring come back. You know, if anything, you know, maybe even higher than before. Um, so generally speaking, still pretty bullish on that side of it. Uh, and uh, the brick and mortar side, um, we don't typically invest that much on brick and mortar schools per se, um, but a lot of our things we'll look at might sell to those brick and mortar schools. Uh, Generally speaking, I mean, I, I think we're pretty optimistic. I mean, one area, one example is on the early childhood side. You know, I think daycares, you know, is probably one of the, the segments, subsegments of our market that have arguably been hit the hardest by COVID. 
you know, it's a lot of physical infrastructure in that too. Small companies, mom and pop sort of daycares that are being operated. Though as an investor, you know, I, I, I don't see that as a permanent effect. You know, I don't think, you know, daycares are going away. You know, I think, yes, they had thin margins to begin with. Maybe some of them are operators for a long period of time in the past. And this, this may be something that, that tipped it over the edge in, in a very unfortunate way. But generally speaking, I'm pretty optimistic about that space. And so like looking at, you know, companies that are selling to daycare or selling to broadly early childhood education, still very uh, bullish on. In fact, we, we did some research over the summer on it and published a report on it on our, on our website around just early education and the effects of COVID and, you know, still how there's, there's going to be a lot of demand down, down the road. So that's an example where, Look, it, it does seem probably one of the hardest hit by COVID, though as an investor, still still optimistic and, and, and bullish on it. So for the businesses which will pick up later again, do you think they should be raising capital right now? Is it, is it a good idea for the founders? Or Because I believe it could be one, they won't be able to raise, or second, it could be a discounted round. So should they raise? And if they, sh- if they should, how like what should be the valuation or should be uh, maybe a safe round what do you believe i actually would it, really just empathizing as as uh, to, to, if i were starting my business or running my business I, I actually don't know if you know optimizing for the valuation environment is the right thing to think about in terms of timing of your raise i would i mean the framework i generally apply is sort of two things it's sort of raise how much you need to reach the next milestone. And the second relatedly is, you know, raise the amount to do so comfortably. And, you know, they're they're related because it's sort of subjective. You know, like if you think hitting your next business's milestone will take six months or 12 months, let's say 12 months, um, you should raise that, that amount. Raising more, you know, probably gives you too much dilution than you need to. Raising less might not get you to the point that, de-risks the business so that you can, you can, you know, get a, get a bigger valuation. And the second element of comfortably is, is sort of subjective, right? Like some people might want a few months of cushion. Some people want 12 months of cushion or, you know, whatnot. And that's, that's more important, I think, than, than suggesting, Hey, this seems like a, a hot environment right now to raise. Maybe that's on the margin, you know, like if you're going to raise now versus three months from now or something like that. And, and even then it's really hard to gauge that. Uh, I would, I would instead apply you know, sort of more of a fundamental approach to your own business on when to raise and how much, whatnot. So Rohan, my last question is, what are your views? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of education and work? Very optimistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> we see a lot, we see a lot of opportunity. I mean, anywhere from pre-K to, to gray, really. I mean, we spoke about early childhood, which you could argue was one of the hardest hit from the COVID. And I'm still very optimistic about, about that. I think K-12, you're getting a lot more technology infused on the B2B side. And on the B2C side, more and more parents are getting involved uh, in, in spending on education. Skills training, alternatives to higher ed are also growing on the higher ed side. And so across that whole age spectrum, you're seeing a lot of, a lot of opportunity and, and geographically as well, not only in North America, but abroad. So uh, it's an exciting time. I mean, that's also probably why you're seeing a lot more, you know, investors coming into this space, but it's, it's, it's the thesis we've had now for a few years, hence yeah. why we specialized in it. And 
and, and if anything, you know, more optimistic than ever. So if the founders want to reach, reach out to you, like do you prefer them to come to your like website? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you can come to our website, lumoscapitalgroup.com. You know, we're, we're generally pretty available to uh, email is sort of my first name at lumoscapitalgroup.com. So we'd be happy to, to talk to anyone. Awesome. Rohan, thank you so much for your time. Like I'm sure our listeners would have enjoyed this and this, this discussion was super insightful, not for listeners, I think for founders in every space, not just at tech space. So this is, this has been great. Thank you so much again. And with this, I would like to conclude the episode eight of our podcast series, Venture Journey. Stay tuned for more updates. Thanks, Abhi.